You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick old trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble and drunk. Radical Australia and Community Radio 3CR streaming live on 3cr.org.au. This program is podcast. My name's Joseph Toscano. I'm going to finish that truncated interview we did with Chile uh, two weeks ago. Hello, Chile. How you going, Joe? I'm exceptionally well. I'm sitting here where I'm overlooking a forest and... Uh, Looking at the sun. What are you doing? Looking at a brick wall? Yeah, I'm looking at the four walls of my apartment. <laughs> well, Chile, all I can say is commiserations. That's what happens when you live in the city. Now, look, I'm a, I've got to apologise. Uh, we finished the last interview 10 minutes early because I can't read a clock. And I felt uh-huh. that uh, we, we rushed things. And I'm really interested in talking to you about your life in Australia because, um, obviously, uh, being a, coming from Chile into Australia, you can see this country with fresh eyes. So uh, let's go back to uh, when you first came to Australia. What year was that? I came down here on February 2007. 2007, Nanda. What was the main reason you came? I came here to do my master's degree. There was, um, I wanted to leave my country. Um, right. I was telling you in the last interview, I'm gay, and that didn't go well down in my country. Uh, it doesn't go well now, but certainly 15 years ago it was worse. Um, mm-hmm. So I was looking for ways to get out. In Australia, back in that day, it has an open migration policy. And it was open for you if you come here and do a master's degree. There were pathways for you to be able to stay. And because it was a big investment for me as a Chilean person to study abroad, Australia was the most, um, it was the only place that uh, afforded me a future if I came down and study. It wasn't just selling me a course, but also it was also a possibility of being able to stay. So I came here to do my master's in communication in Melbourne Uni with the view that if I like it, I was going to stay. And, well, I kind of like it a lot. All right. So uh, tell us again, when you got to Melbourne Uni, what did mm-hmm. you think of the university? Because obviously you'd been to, what, Santiago University or in Chile? Yeah, yeah I, I, went to, um, I went to University of Chile and then I went to a private university called International University SEC. Mm-hmm. And... Um, when I first arrived to Melbourne Uni, I was very excited. You know, back in the day when I applied, Melbourne Uni was featured as number eight in the arts sector around the world. Mm-hmm. I was uh, my my hopes were very up high. The program that I was paying was really expensive. It was a master's degree. Uh, the requirements for me to apply were pretty high. It included to have two years of working in the industry, and I had work um, teaching in Chile and also as an assessor of a communication assessor of the president. So I came down here to do that course, and I'm not going to lie to you, it was a little bit of a disappointment. <laughs> um, well, that's what the program's about. That's what I want to know. Why was it a disappointment? Because uh, the 
well, the content that it was being given to me in my first year of masters was the content that I was teaching to first year in TAFE in my country. Right. <laughs> so when I was looking at my bill, you know, twenty five thousand dollars a year for content that I was teaching in my country to younger people. I was like, yeah, this is not not quite what I was thinking. Yeah, but uh, but you would have got a high distinction then, wouldn't you? Because you wrote the course in Chile. <laughs> well, but this is the thing, Joe. I didn't because I um, my English wasn't that great. And also, when you translate your language, when your English is your second language, it's not only that you have to learn the language, which I was okay with, but also the formalities. You see, the the way that we redact or the way that we write or structure a text, especially university text in Spanish. It's completely different than the way that you do it in English. So you here work a lot with essays and articles. Mm-hmm. We work a lot with reports and investigations. So normally, for in, when you write in Spanish, when you do uh, a work for university, 70, 30% would be your lit review and 70% would be something that you come out, uh, your own analysis. But coming down here, the structure of an essay or the structure of a report here, it's exactly the opposite. It would be 70% a lit review and only a 30% of what you think. So I got into a lot of trouble the first year um, trying to translate this format. And at the same time, I didn't find much support at university to be able to have help with the English, you know. There was a department that would help you out and check your spelling and check, you know, your formatting and all of that jazz. But it had a queue of two months, so that means that you had to finish your assignment two months before your deadline to make sure that you can pass it to someone to help you out in the language department. So I had a lot of trouble with it. I remember after doing a presentation of my second year in master's, I had a teacher, Umi, which was um, which was uh, from Indian origin. Mm-hmm. And I remember her sitting down there because I, I felt a lot that I was getting marked in my grammar and my punctuation and my typos, you know? I lost a yeah. lot of marks in that. And um, after doing a, an oral presentation there, like Umi stood up and said, I remember saying, everyone that it's a, 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 an English-speaking person here should know that they stand in a big, in a big um, privilege in the sense of, like, you got a management of your language, and that means that you don't lose a lot of points of this. But if we look at ideas and we look at, you know, uh, producing knowledge and critically thinking knowledge, um, the international students are kicking ass. They're just, like, not getting the recognition because they, they struggle with the English and the formatting, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was an interesting one. I, so I didn't start with high, high, high distinction. Also, Joe, I had to work to pay for this. So... And I worked. Hang on, hang on. Didn't you come? That didn't you come here with thousands, of, hundreds of thousands of dollars stuffed in your shoes or something? No, mate. I I don't come from a wealthy family. I asked for a loan. I got admitted in the University of Melbourne, and mm-hmm. I applied for a student loan in Chile to be able to come and pay for that. Right. So I. I the bank approved me half of the money of the tuition of the two years, and I said, well, that's okay. I got 20 hours a week that I'm allowed to work. I'm going to work the rest of the hours. But then when I was here, the bank decided that they were going to give me just uh, half of that. So that implies that I had to have a fair few jobs, and, you know, when there wasn't, when I didn't have restrictions to work, when I was allowed to work more than 20 hours a week in non-tuition times, I was working 14 hours a week, 14 hours a day, seven days a week, to be able to save the money to pay for the tuition and my life. Hang on, hang on. You were working 14 hours a day plus university? Yes, sir. Plus university? Well, it's a tricky one. Um, Yeah, well, the times that I didn't have tuition times, yeah, I was doing that. Mm. (sighs) Yes. What type of work were you doing? What what type of work were you doing Was in Melbourne? I started doing dishes. It took me. Right, you're a di- you're a dish pig. I started at, as a mm-hmm. that's a terribly offensive term that we're trying to eradicate out of the of the kitchens, Joe. I was a dishwasher, right. which is probably one of the hardest jobs that a person does in a kitchen. Well, um, it's very hard. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is. It's a brutal job. You're the last one to leave a kitchen, the first one mm-hmm. to arrive, the last one to leave. Um, mm-hmm. 
I was getting paid back in the day $12 an hour. The offering was in cash. That's what it was. And my shift was three hours a day at the beginning. Um, and then I, I, find, I learned how to cook, and I basically climbed the ladder from there because that was the job that I was, it was on offer. Right. So, so how did you find yeah. these? How did you find these jobs? You'd knock on doors or just people recommending well, them? Or? I was knocking on doors and applying for jobs since the minute that I arrived here in February. But my first mm. job, I got it in August. And it was funny enough, I lived next door to Mr. Naturals, you know, the little pizza shop that used to be on Brunswick Street, a vegetarian shop that was there for a long right. time. And we right. were just next door with it. And I made friends with the owner just because we were neighbors and we could hardly understand each other. Cenk was, um, was born here from Cyprus, Turkish descendant. And he was a really nice guy. And we used to sit at the back and, you know, smoke cigarettes in his break. And there was this one day that I ran out of money because for about six months I was trying to get a job and I couldn't find a job. And I had paid university and I give all that money up to those big payments, you know, and, and housing and all of that jazz. And I couldn't find a job, so I was running out of cash. I had $100 in my bank account, and I've decided to go and change my ticket and go back to Chile because this was not going to work. And as was I going, I left my house to go to the city to change my ticket. It was about, it was in August, I think it was November, because um, um, Jen came out outside and said uh, it was grand final day. And he came out outside and he was like, oh, it's Chile, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm going to the city to do to do some paperwork. I didn't tell me what I was going to do, but I yes. was about to cancel my, my trip to Australia, you know, about to go back home. And um, he goes like, oh, look, my kitchen hand um, couldn't make it, and I need someone to help me out because I got to, do you want, do you want a job? I asked him for a job before, and he didn't have a job. And at that point, he was desperate. Right. He was like, can you work? Yes. And I was like, sure, sure I can. So that's the day that I got my job, and I started with him. And then I stayed in the place for about four years. I worked with him for about four years. He taught me how to cook. Mm-hmm. And then I got poached from there to a big kitchen in the city. Right. So, you were, so how many years did you stay in Melbourne? Uh, I lived in Melbourne from 2007 all the way down to 2015. In 2015, I took my car and I lived for three years traveling up and down the East Coast. All right, we'll talk about that in a minute. But I'm just, no I'm just interested in Melbourne. So were you able to make uh, any friends during that period or was it just basically study and work? Oh, the first year was mainly trying to survive, adapt, learn, get a job, pay bills, and mm-hmm. trying to figure out if life and speed was first. Or, or mm-hmm. was, I, I used to get lost a lot in the streets, man. <laughs> um, what, what do you mean lost in the streets? I used to get lost a lot because Melbourne doesn't... Oh, really, really lost, lost. Not philosophically, existentially lost, but just lost. Yeah, no, existentially lost, that never was, mate. I knew what I, what I was doing, but um, right. it was important time to remember, you know, I was drumming with the first At the beginning, it was hard because Melbourne is a very flat city, mate. It doesn't have many points of reference. To know where the north is, it took me a while to figure it out. Right. So did you, did you, like you said, how often did you think about going back home? This is this is quite quite an extraordinary story, really. It's really it's not a not a way to live, is it? Home. I went home at the beginning. I was when my first thing down to Australia I had a ticket to go back home. You know, in case that it didn't work, but it kind mm. of did work, and I went out for visiting. Then I came back here. I two years later I was able to visit again because my mom gifted me a a ticket because you would understand that you know while paying the tuition at uni, paying for housing, paying for your life, transport, etc. And on top of that, paying for the visa and all the costs associated with the visa um, mm-hmm. was taking basically all of the money that I was able to make. So planning trips of my own was really hard. And then because of migration, when I applied for my permanent residency and stuff, I had to spend five years stuck here without being able to travel. Right, right. And uh, how difficult was that process of getting permanent residence? Well, to me, it took nine years mm-hmm. and um, about $120,000. Right. You know, That's in between... Difficult. 
in between the courses that I have to pay. It's terribly difficult, Joe, and it's become outstandingly difficult over time. Like every year, it's harder and harder to be able to stay in Australia. Like Australia doesn't really have, like it, they don't say it, but it doesn't really have an open migration policy anymore. So we used to have about 2,000 pathways to become a permanent resident. In Australia now, I think that there is six. Right. Um, and it all depends on, you know, what visa you enter the country, you know, what places are you living. I think at the moment, the only way to get permanent residence if you're entering the country now is that you're studying and working in remote areas. I think that's the mm -hmm. only visa that leads up to that, or that you're offering, you know, a contract over 100K a year. Yeah. It's very difficult yeah. to stay here. Yes, we've got, a, we've got a long, long history in this country of exploiting migrant labour. I remember when my parents came here in the late 40s, it was the same mm -hmm. story. Uh, they needed labour then, but uh, it was very difficult. It's always been difficult. They used to have police interviews, and uh, the police would come to your home, and it just went on and on in those days. And you couldn't speak yeah. your language in the streets. People would abuse you. It just went on. Did you find... Uh, uh, much uh, difficulty with uh, Melbourne people regarding the fact that you were, a, you know, your nationality. Well, it's a funny question. It's a good question you're asking, Joe. Uh, one of the one of the things that most surprised my uh, other migrant friends was the fact that I was able to make Australian friends. Because you see, that's mm -hmm. one of the hardest steps for a migrant in this country to be able to establish a good relationship, like a friendship, a close relationship with an Australian person. That, and I'm not going to point it out to any reason in particular, but one of the things that I observed at the beginning is the fact that, well, you guys live here and you have your life here, <laughs> you know? So you got yes. your friends and your families and all of down here. A migrant comes down here trying to establish um, networks and making friends and, you know, knowing people. And it's easy to meet all the migrants because we share a reality and also because all the migrants are also looking for people. Whereas Australians, you know, they have their friends from high school, they have their friends from uni, they have their friends from all of the, because all of their life is here. So that's a barrier on one side. On the other mm -hmm. one, it's um, the assumption that you're transient, you know, that you're yes. going to be here and go away. Because frankly, until you don't have your residency in your hand, you never know if you're going to be able to stay or not. Yeah, and so, did, people see you as, did people see you as competition in the labor market, so... Absolutely. Like uh, when I first arrived to, um, I, already, I was already a permanent resident and I was in Queensland traveling and I applied for a job in remote Queensland. So it's the type of job in a, in a roadhouse, you know, in the middle of nowhere. And it's yep. the type of job that you apply on paper and then you have an interview over the phone because you're not going to travel, you know, the 1,000 kilometers inland to go for an interview. Yep. So I was applying with my partner. My partner was Australian um, mm. without an accent, born here. So she did all the interviews and stuff. And in the paper, you know, it was two Australian that they were going to come and, and work. And when mm -hmm. we arrived, um, it down onto my bosses that I wasn't quite the Australian that they were expecting. I was an Australian with an accent, so I wasn't born here. Right. And the first thing that my boss told me, she put me aside and she said, look, I don't trust your kind. I'm in the middle right. of nowhere, Joe. Like I've driven um, <laughs> in the Leander Crossing right in between, you know, Charter's Towers in, in, in Claremont. I know Charterstown, St. Claremont, I know both towns. I was born in Queensland, so I know that place. <laughs> so when I was in Beliardo, you know, and the owner comes on here and goes like, yeah, I don't trust your kind. And I was like, oh, Jesus. I was like, what type of kind is it that you don't trust? And I'm thinking to myself, is it, is it because I got the twos? Is it because I'm gay? Is it because I'm a migrant? Is it, I'm not really sure. What kind do you refer to? And she said to me, you come here and take my jobs, take our jobs. And I yeah. looked at her, this is my employer. And then yeah. I said to her, well, how can I, how can I steal the job? Like, yeah. you gave me a job. You selected me. And I, 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 I need to pose this question back to you. You advertise this job for backpackers. And I'm guessing you advertise this job for backpackers because, A, you're not willing to pay the full Australian wage, or, B, because you can't find Australian candidates in the area. Because you got a preference for Australian people, and you're not getting it. You gave me this job. How can I steal it? And she was very puzzled by that. She looked at me and she was like, well, I guess, I guess you're right. Frankly, I said to her, I look at her and say, look, honestly, if a person that comes down here hardly speaks English, doesn't know anyone, you know, 
gets the job over the Australian, it's because he probably applied harder, mate. Like, or he was looking for one. Because you can't tell me that a person that is in disadvantage is taking, you know, the job. You're giving the job to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we ended up developing a good relationship with her. It took a bit, well, but... You'll find that you'll find that a lot of Australians uh, have got stereotypes in their heads from the media and from their friends, and when they one to one, things uh, improve quite dramatically. We I find that uh, we've got all these stereotypes in our heads, not just about migrants, but about Aboriginal people, Torres Strait Islanders, gay people. We're just full of stereotypes, you know. We forget that human beings are human beings. What really caught my interest is when you said you got into a car and did the great Australian journey, you know? That's right. What type yeah. of car? What type of car? What was it? A proper car, man. A Ford Falcon wagon, you know? Ford Falcon wagon? Good, good. Both, you can both sleep in the back. I like that. Did you have yeah, we never slept in the back. We, we took a tent with us because it was too hot to sleep inside the. That's where actually we picked the car with a tent rather than yes. a van. Because right. knowing right. that the temperatures at the top, especially during the wet season, you yeah. know, yeah. we're not going had, 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 had your partner been uh, done the great trip before or not? No, no, she didn't. She had traveled outside of Australia, but she hadn't done the full East Coast. And we, we fell in love with it. We, we traveled up and down, especially in front of Queensland. I told you last time that we spoke. I ended up using yeah, well, let's start. Let's start. So you started from Melbourne. Yes, I started from Melbourne. We went straight up to Newcastle because that's where her parents were. So yep. we kind of skipped the Central Coast here. and we, it, was, it was April when we left, end of April, beginning of May. So it was getting really cold. Mm-hmm. Mm. And and we wanted to get to the warm as soon as possible, you know. Part of the trip was like, yes. let's keep Melbourne's winter yeah. to start up. So you, you realize you, you you realize this is a trip that makes you one of us. This is the great dream <laughs> that all Australians have. I remember when, in the 1970s when I was a young person, I did the big trip around Australia in in a battered old car with you know, you'd sleep on the beaches. In those days, it was much freer. But uh, this is the big dream, the big dream. You're one of us now. You know that. <laughs> well, you got to tell that to the people that keep asking me for my passport and making sure that I'm allowed to be here. <laughs> no, you just tell them. You just tell them you've done the big trip. You've done the big trip. I mean, uh, I used to uh, used to laugh uh, occasionally. I don't know if you have met them in your travels. The the Japanese bike rider who's going around Australia. Did you meet any of them? No, 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 no. I didn't. How about the people pushing a trolley on the side of the road going around the <laughs> Yeah, there's a few of them, especially yeah, around the northern rivers. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great thing. It's a great thing. It's, it's a dream I've had. I'll never do it. I'm too old about walking around Australia. You know, it takes about three years. It's, uh, it's a big dream. But you drove. So Newcastle, we're after Newcastle. Where'd you go after yeah. Newcastle? We got to, actually, Port Macquarie was the first stop. And the second stop we got out of there, well, of course, Byron Bay, because we want to stop down there. It's already warm, and it's, and you yeah. come for one night because it's too bloody expensive to stay in there. Oh, it's terrible, and, yeah. As I tell you, at the beginning, we were in a rush to get up north. Mm-hmm. So we stopped. The first stops down there were, um, we spent the week in the Sunshine Coast. Mm-hmm. And then and exploring Nuta and all of that area, you know, and then we went down to Rainbow Beach. Yep. And then we stopped in a lot of um lot of little towns. I remember one particularly called Barham Heads. Yes. Which is the Barham River meets, you know, the, the ocean and it's um it's very flat a very flat beach where the where the 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 tide recedes for hundreds of meters and leaves this uh-huh. flat, flat, flat space. And Barrowheads was really interesting because it was just, um, it was a tiny, tiny town. It had, you know, a little supermarket close to the um, camping area. And basically everyone there was a grey nomad. And when we arrived, they were really surprised to see young people there. Like we woke up to the supermarket that night to buy a couple of things, like snacks to make in the barbecue, you know. And you get to the, the, the thing and, and the cashier goes to us and goes like, we don't see people like you here. And again, Monique and I look at each other and goes like, what, people like us is because we're gay, because we got shaved heads, because we got tattoos. What is it? And she goes like, no, 
young people. That must have shocked you. <laughs> it was so funny. You know, it was a really interesting. We ended up, we were going to stay overnight there. We stayed like three days because playing bingo with the oldies was really fun. Yeah. Besides, yeah. they all had really cool RVs and they invited us to watch the telly with them. So, you know, yeah. we watched the Price is Right and all of that, the chaser mm. with them. Um, you realize with the, gray, with the gray nomads, a lot of them do it because of cost. They uh, yes, have living in the city and they have enough to get a caravan and uh, travel, you know, on their yes. pension, basically. Yeah, and they pay, they put the house in, in as a rental or as an Airbnb and they travel yeah. around. I met heaps and heaps of uh, great nomads. Most of the time it was my only companions, you know, in the in the in the bush especially because you see very little young people doing this trip and that really surprised me, Joe, because I was like, to be honest, I had never had a problem getting a job mm. in any of the towns that I hit. Well, I'm a chef, so it's easy to employ myself, but neither did my partner that made coffee, so they're very basic skills. Half of Melbourne has them. Um, mm. There was never a shortage of jobs and we were never bad received, way on the contrary, but very seldomly we saw Australian young people doing this trip. Well, it's different. When I was a young man, as I said, in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, uh, there was a lot of people travelling. Uh, we do a lot of travelling. Uh, it was kind of a, a rite of passage, you know, as an Australian uh, youngster. But today, because of pressures at university and college, because we had free education in those days. We didn't pay for our education. People have now got a hex debt. They've yeah. got insecure work. They've got uh, a type of university where you've got continuous assessment. You're, you know, We used yep. to have one examination at the end of the year, and that was it, which gave us a lot of free time. So you're quite right. Most of the people that are travelling now around Australia are elderly, uh, yep. and uh, a lot of them do it for, for financial reasons. A lot of them do it because you know it's just a way of life for them. You know, I remember I went to a caravan park outside, about 200 kilometres from uh, Broome a few years ago. Mm -hmm. It was just full of people who are just living in these situation because of the uh, poverty, basically. Lots of people... Yeah, you see that a lot. Yeah. I saw that a lot in the coast of um, New South Wales, Central yeah. Coast, around Coffs Harbour, um, um, South Rocks, and mm. all of that area, Kyneton, like all of that area there, it was uh, most of the, the national parks were packed with people that they were living in, in fixed Fixed accommodation. I'm not even talking in camping spots, like not not caravan parks, but like full-on bush retreats. You know, yeah, yeah, with yeah. the motorhomes just parked there, the 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 wheels, the tires have been they're broken, they're slashed, and they've been there for six, eight months. That was an area that it was a little bit hard to see and very different from the rest the rest of what we saw in the coast. Mm. Um, we didn't see that in Queensland much, though. No. So how far north did you get? Well, I went on the way up to the Daintree, because passing a little bit further than that in Port Douglas, because uh, Cape Tribulation, that area, we wanted to go to Cape York, but we found out that if we wanted to go up there, the Falcon wasn't enough. We needed, we needed nah, a port to drive. No, you don't want to break an axle up there. <laughs> yeah, and also you can't go anywhere. Like you, you have to stick up to the main road, and you can't really get out of there. And if you're going to make the effort to go to Cape York, you've got to get out of the freaking car, get out of the road and go and take a look. It's wonderful, you know? Mm -hmm. Did you, in Queensland, North Queensland, did you come across any uh, First Nations people? Yeah, I did. I, um, I use a lot of... Um, I, I use Mission Beach as my base. I came back to Mission Beach several times. The first time that I was there was for a couple of months. The second time I was working there for six months. The third time I was working there for three months. And I was running a bar there. Um, a bar at the beach and even though well, I got a neighbor that it was First Nations Ricky that him and I had a really good relationship he used to um, fix my bikes right. he was part of he was part of the Jiro community which is in the back of the Katawari coast mm -hmm. and I remember this man that used to call him, I used to call him the croc man because he, he was from Cape York he said that he came from the croc people and he used to come down in his travels from his work up and down from Townsville up to Cape York. He used to stop in Mission, and he used to stay at the bar for a half day, having a couple of teenies, you know, and, and a burger. And we used to have a chat. It was a really nice man. But um, as a regular thing, uh, um, 
uh, Joe, in my trips all around the north, I saw a big separation in between the Aboriginal community and the in the white community. You know, like in in Keynes, most of the First Nations that I saw they're in a situation of street very similar as you walk down Smith Street here. You know, and once I was embedded in the communities, like when I was in when I was living in the Leando Crossing, out of the 150 workers that I met there from the cattle station, the only First Nation person was Black Damon. You know, that was his name, Black Damon. Because there was three right. other Damons and he needed to be called Black Damon. And he was the only Aboriginal kid and he was adopted in mm-hmm. in one of the cattle stations. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, I didn't have uh, much more contact, as I said, not in the communities that I lived. Um, no, well, you're right. Because Queensland, yeah, I was born in Queensland and, there's, uh, and I said my late wife was a Torres Strait Islander farmer of Queensland. Yes, there is. Look, there's always been a lot of division, uh, a lot of separation. I don't know if you realise that uh, when the apartheid system was uh, introduced in South Africa, they actually came uh, the, uh, they came to Queensland and uh, designed the apartheid system, separate developers on the basis of uh, laws happening in Queensland. Because in those days, First Nations people needed permits to leave uh, where they lived, they needed permits to marry, they needed permits to do this and that. It was uh, it was total total uh, separation of uh, of the communities. Total separation. Yeah. Oh, it's, and it's funny that you mentioned the apartheid because that that was I remember having a sit down when we were in Keynes with my partner and and talking exactly about that because there was a well, when we got to Keynes it was the most amount of like Aboriginal people that we've seen as part of the community like I mean, like in your mm-hmm. daily life you know. Up, in what we would seen different in the rest of the East Coast, in a big city, you know? Mm-hmm. Big presence of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But also an incredible resistance to them from the white community. Like, we remember going into a shop in Queensland and, you know, having the person that was attending the shop very freely and gratuitously asking, no one asking, giving a commentary about, you know, Aboriginal people. Like, it was a constant that we saw. And when we were coming back, when we were getting out of the, in the car, we both actually mentioned the apartheid when we were having the chat going. Like, it's very strong, the separation there is. We've never seen the two communities together and at the same time seeing the massive division right in front of you in the same mm-hmm. sidewalk, if you mean, you know? That's right. It, uh, been, oh, it was much, 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 much more difficult in the past, much more difficult. So when you say you're a chef, what does yeah. that mean? Well, I, I I run kitchens. I cook and I run kitchens. You know, I order food. What what what? what look, I don't think I, else. I mean, we kind of well in the old days when we could go into a restaurant and have a meal. Um, what does what does a chef actually do? I mean, I know you cook, but when you say yeah. you run a kitchen, um, how difficult is it to keep things pumping along? What do you need to do? Oh, a kitchen is a brutal job, mate. Like a chef, everyone thinks that we just cook. We don't. Like, we walk into a kitchen. I'm not sure if you've seen a commercial kitchen, mate, but when you walk in there in the morning, it's like a brand-new kitchen. Everything's polished. Mm. And during the day, we destroy that kitchen. We prep a lot of food. We I order food. Like, I walk in there, I check my fridges, I see what I've got, and then I play with, like, what I call the ghost numbers, you know? I need to yeah. figure out how much I sold. Basically, how many people do I think it's going to come the next day and the following day so I can make the ordering of the goods that are going to come in and then determine what prep needs to be done, how that, that those, those products need to be prepped in order to be able to cook at the time that we're servicing, you know, which is like when the clients come in and they order food. But normally we're there, as a chef, it's you're there two hours before the venue would open to open up and fire up the kitchen, check everything, make all the orders, receive all the goods that are coming in, pack those orders, um, Rotate all the stock that you have in there. So every time that you bring something, you need to bring what's at the back and put it at the front. Uh, you need to write down all the temperatures of your fridges. You need to keep your equipment going. I know about gas <laughs> appliances. Yeah. I know about pilots. I know about um, dishwasher, electrics. Basically, every machinery that you use in that kitchen, I know how to troubleshoot it, turn it on, turn it off, etc. and I have to upkeep it. Um, as a head chef as well, I have to do the rosters of my, my, my cooks and the budgeting of the kitchen and the costing of the menus. And mm-hmm. three times a day, I have to take the temperatures of all the fridges and check that the food that it's in there, it's not 
going bad and that we're following all the procedures. If there's a breach of the procedure, I need to figure out why were there a breach and if I need to train or if I need to change the procedure. It's a big job, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling I'm feeling exhausted listening to you. Chilling. Oh, mate, I feel like, exhausted. I'm <laughs> listening, and I'm starting to enjoy this quarantine again. You know? Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, now, when you were working up and down the coast, uh, were you being paid uh, award rates, or was that hardly well, ever? It's easier for a person in a kitchen, or at least in my experience, during the years that I did it. It's easier to get a job on the award in New South Wales and Queensland than it was in Melbourne at that time. Really? Yes, sir. Oh, that's interesting. Why? Because there were a lack of good chefs up north? Or well, like, it's a completely different economy, mate. Like when you move around Melbourne, there's heaps and heaps of eateries. The competition is absolutely brutal. The margin of profit is really low, you know? The expectation is outstandingly high. Like in Melbourne, part of the reasons why I was I left to travel it was because my my head chef job became a complete corporate job with all of this like online ordering and the reviews that people were putting. So besides doing everything that I was describing before, up here in Melbourne I had to deal with all the reviews and all the online stuff. And Uber was making an entrance, and I needed to figure out which one of these platforms was going to be good for the business or not. While at the same time, you know, cooking for twelve hours a day. So. And, and getting paid 50 grand a year, which is not a lot, you know? And um, yeah. and when I left the Queensland, I found out that working in a hotel, you know, because tourism is huge up there, um, small towns, a few restaurants, competition is not that great. There is a tourism bug, you know? You've got these big buses of tourists that they come in, they stop in, you get 200 clients in one go, they go out. Yeah. Also, there is a lot of money because the economy up there, as you know, seasonal work, cane fields, mining, pays big bucks, and people yeah. are willing to spend a lot. You know, and also life is cheaper in terms of energy and all of that kind of jazz. Like warming up a house in Melbourne costs a lot of money. Mm-hmm. In Queensland, as you know, you can just sleep outside most of the time as long as you've got good repellent, you know? That's right, yeah. But so, you know, the people who live in the house is different. And up there, I found out that my job was a lot easier. The expectation uh, of the client was a lot lower. As in, like, I remember rocking up to a place and putting beer on the butter, and people thought that I was Master Chef, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for laughing. <laughs> and in the same bar, you know, you get a person. I used to know a Melbourneian straight away. They used to walk into the bar in front of Queensland, and they asked me for a long black, please. And I look at them because not many people drink on Slack, and I go like, "Are you from Melbourne?" And they go like, "Yeah, how did you know?" I was like, "Oh, it's just a question." It's like, "Do you actually drink a flat white?" And they were like, "Yes, we do." How did you know that? I was like, "How many times had they burned your milk from Melbourne up to here?" <laughs> and they go like, "Yeah, too many times. We just can't count anymore. Now we just give up and we just drink on Slacks." <laughs> yeah. Now, now you went. You said you went to cattle country. How did you find the difference? North Queensland on the coast or in the cattle country? Oh, night to day, mate. Night to day. Especially because my side of the, the the coast that I was in was the Cassowary Coast that, as you know, is where the Great Barrier Reef is and the big mm. reserves of cassowaries. And a lot of um, there's a big emphasis in conservation and in nature because it's, um, it's, it's the point of sell, you know? They sell tourism. They sell this beautiful reef, these beautiful beaches, this amazing rainforest, you know? So there is a lot of care for the environment, which was very surprising after driving all around Queensland. Um, the amount of people who really care about the land and the environment and, and the conservation of that, we got a, an image in our heads in Melbourne that everyone in Queensland is a farmer that wants to clear up the entire thing, which is very far away from reality. Well, on the other hand, in, in, in inland, you know, in cattle country, it's a completely different life. It's a very isolated life. Very hard, with very full-on conditions. Um, you know, uh, very every cattle station, it's basically a little town of its own, a little community of its own, of people that live there. For the people that don't know and they're listening, Joe, in the stretch that I was working, so there's basically 500 kilometers in between Charter Towers and Clement, mm-hmm. and um, in about 400 kilometers from there to the coast. And all of that is cattle country. So every cattle station is like the size of Estonia. And you will have in between anywhere in between four 
to 50 people in every station minding it up. You know, I remember there was a station there that the owner used to, Mr. Barnett, used to come in and said that he has fires burning for 20 years in that property without turning off. Mm. It's like, wow. And he was like, yeah, we can drive. It takes us, you know, four days to be able to drive around the, the, the place, the, the station. It's huge. And the life is really hard, and you don't see many tourists up there, you know. And, and it's almost like a feudalism, you know, like you belong to the person. It is that feudalism. It is. It is the nail on the head. It is corporate feudalism because most of those farms are managed, those cattle stations are managed. They've got managers and workers, and uh, they're actually not owned by the people who work on them. It is feudalism. Yeah, well, in the place that I was living, I most of the owners would live in premises, hey? Like, um, I was, there was three very prominent owners that they used to come, because I work in the service station, so we, everyone came out for petrol, booze, um, lollies, and, you know, chippies. Mm. We were the only thing that they were there to, to serve them, and we were the bar at the night, so we got a lot of conversations. Three owners, you know, every owner would have would be mom and dad, you know, owners of the station with their kids. They would hire a governess, which is the person yes. who is with the schooling of the kids, and the nanny, which helps out with the kids after the governess is done with the schooling. Then you will have the ringers, you know, the, the cowboys, yes. which you yes. will have anywhere between two. And there was a guy that ran a 10,000-head cattle station with only one cowboy. He was like an idol. Anyway, um, but there were stations that they have, you know, 20 to 30 ringers, you will have the one or two cooks and one or two helpers mm. for them. Because, um, you know, the ringers go around the property all week around, so they're not in the house. They go around That's and they right. camp around as they're moving around, and the cook goes with them. And there mm. is, you know, refrigerators around the property that the cook hits to be able to... Then there's another person that helps them do the washing. And all of these people live in this, in this cattle station, and all of these people conform this mini society, you know, that mm. once in a while was brought to our bar and given a lot of booze by their owners. But I remember that when I make friends with the with the owner of one of our best clients, the owner of the, the farm that was right next to us, which means down the road you had to drive 15 kilometers to get to his store. Um, yes. He wanted us to come and hang out with him. He was like, I want you guys to come down to my farm and look at it. And I was yeah. like, okay, but we don't know how we go about it because clearly there is formalities that, he, that we don't understand. And Donald was like, look, it's super simple. While you're here, you belong to Mandy. You know, she's your boss here. Yes. So you work for her and she disposes of your time because she's paying for it. So I am going to talk to her to arrange for this. Yes. So he would talk to my boss and my boss would be stoked. She was really happy that he was inviting us. Yes. And... And, and they arranged for a time that they, she could spare us and he could have us, you know. And, yeah. and she was really sweet as well. Like she, she made sure that we, because he was, just, he, he told us, calm down here at five o'clock in the morning, on Saturday. Yeah. Particularly, Mandy told me I was in shift, and Mandy woke up and she was like, okay, you two are going to go to Donald's farm tomorrow at five o'clock in the morning. Do you know how to drive a quad bike? And we were <laughs> like, no, we never drive a quad bike. And he was like, right on. Grab a can of petrol, go up the back. I got a quad right there. Here are the keys. Take it to the paddock and burn as much petrol as you need until you learn. Yeah. I was like, right yeah. up. So and don't, and don't roll the keys. Yeah. Whatever you and do, then, don't roll the quad bike. <laughs> and we rolled up to Donald's farm the next day. He was driving this quad bike at 5 o'clock in the morning in the highway. <laughs> <laughs> It was the Queensland thing. We were joking that we should have taken, you know, the motorized esky, which we had two of them, you know, right. and would have been faster. And we got there, and Donald was there with four cowboys because it was the day that we needed to go and pick up. It was mastering day. Right. So he had hired four people, and Donald looked at him. He was a very dry guy, but really funny. And he goes, like, I'm glad that you guys are here. You guys have this an experience for you. We're going to take you to master cows. You're going to help us out. I was like, so who wants to drive the motorbike first? And Monique was like, oh, you drive it first because you're better. And I was like, okay. She was like, right. And you are going in a surprise. And Monique was like, what surprise is this? He goes, I should be here any minute. Three, two, one, and a helicopter just freaking lands out. Right. Because, <laughs> really? yeah, I didn't know um, 
joke. When you have a place that is so big, and I'm pretty sure that not many people in Melbourne know, the people that grow up in the city, you know, that these places are so big that the cows are just hanging out, you know, and they go away. That's when right. you need to go and pick them up, yeah. you have no idea where they are. And if you're going to look at them by land, you can be going around this property for days without That's seeing right. a cow because they're also moving. So the way that they do it is that they grab a helicopter and the helicopter goes up. It's a tiny little helicopter. It's like a little bubble of glass that doesn't have a door. It was terrifying. And as soon as we jumped in there, <laughs> I jumped in the helicopter. The pilot gave me a shotgun. And I'm like, what is this for? And he was like, oh, just in, just in case we see dingoes, mate. And I'm yeah. like, okay, cool. I'm going to jump in your helicopter, dear hillbilly person, without doors. And I'm going to grab your shotgun and we're going to go and fly and I'm going to trust you. But it was really fun. We go up in the helicopter and basically from the air you find the cows. And when you find the cows in the helicopter, then you have to ring them. So you scare them around with the, the sound of your helicopter flying really low. And then you scare the hell out of them in a certain direction for them to create an stampede. And when the stampede happens and all the cows are grow, like running really fast, they create this massive cloud of dust. And the cowboys that they're in the land, in their motorbikes, can see that cloud. And that's how they know where the cows are and where they have to go. Mm. And I thought, sorry, that not it takes a little bit of time, but I thought it was fascinating the way that they did it. It's very ingenious. And it's um, such a central yeah. part of how cattle country lives, you know? Yeah. Was and I was Chile, you, you and your partner are having so much fun. Why don't you come back to Melbourne? Oh, that's a tricky one, mate. We were um, we were working in Mission Beach. Um, we were working in Mission Beach, and and I was running a bar at the front of the beach, the shrubs. And you know, Mission it's a place where um, where skydiving is king. You know, it's a it's a skydiving platform. Skydiving right. Australia runs an office there, and it's um, it's famous because it's the longest. It's the longest free fall of all the skydiving points that you can do in Australia, and you also do it on top of the Great Barrier Reef. It's a beautiful jump that you do. Um, while I was serving at the bar, the landing strip was right in front of my of my bar. And um, while I was there, my partner was working for, for skydiving in Australia. I was running the bar. As I told you, it was the third time that I was in Mission Beach. We were part of the community, very good friends with everyone. Um, unfortunately, there was a massive accident. That happens on, happened on October 13 of 2017. There was a big tandem accident, the second biggest tandem accident that's ever been in Australia and around the world, and three of our friends were killed in that accident, skydiving accident. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was a bit of a... That was a bit of a big thing. The entire town was looking when this happened. Um, it was quite traumatizing for everyone that was up there. And... Um, yeah, I think that that shook my shook my marriage a little bit. That that episode. And yeah. three weeks after the accident, my partner told me that um, she she wanted she wanted uh, to separate. She wanted yeah. to do so. So basically, I was like, okay, cool. After that accident, everything was really weird. Everything was. I wanted my mom, Joe. So I just picked up a plane and I left. You know. Yeah, well, that's understandable. Understandable. Yeah. After a, a major break, a breakup like that, it's understandable. Yeah. Yeah, it was a bit of a, a full on. I still have like a very huge piece in my heart for Mission Beach and the community up there. Fantastic people. Um, I needed to come back to Melbourne. Like I was after three years traveling, Joe. There's another thing that was happening after three years traveling. I realized that Melbourne for me is home. Right. This is city of misfits that, you know, no one looks at me weird or tells me that they don't like my kind. <laughs> this is something that I hear right. a lot in <laughs> um, Melbourne is a place that I am anonymous and I love that, you know. Um, in fact, I remember visiting from Melbourne. I, I, was in, cause I was in Queensland when I got my call to get my citizenship. And I, I signed up, I wanted my citizenship ceremony to be in Melbourne. So in between all of these troubles in 2016, I traveled back to Melbourne to do my citizenship ceremony. And that night I went out, you know, after being, you know, three years in Queensland. I went out in Melbourne that night. It was a bit cold. It's October. It was a bit cold at night, but we were walking down Ligon Street. And right in the corner of Ligon and Johnston, there was a couple of, of sister girls, you know, in the, yeah, in the corner. Yeah. And yeah. one of them turned around to me 
and grabbed my face and said to me, you look so pretty and so handsome at the same time, Sib. Um, you're lovely. And I remember getting my eyes full of tears. Right. Yeah. In the sense of, you know, being in a city after being in a place where everyone questions you for the way that you look or for your sexuality or for everything or just being identified as something different. To get such a lovely comment to you down in the street, you know, and especially by a member of the Aboriginal community as well, which I got very strong ties down here in Melbourne too, you know. Mm. And it was a total stranger that would just turn around to me and said, your difference is beautiful to me. And that cemented it. So when, when, when I was there and this happened in, in, in Queensland, I was like, I, I was already yearning to come back home. I love traveling. I love going up, but I like coming back home and telling my mates the stories. My partner, on the other hand, she wanted to keep traveling forever. She wanted to go to Asia and Asia and keep traveling all the time without coming back. I, nobody's home. It's my sense of home. I wanted to come and see my friends and my family here. So I came back down here, and here I am, mate. It's been two and a half years since I came back. Right. What have you been doing? Oh, what do you do in Melbourne, mate? Work, 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 work. (laughs) Work. (laughs) Work and volunteer and do work with the community. I got a huge Latinx community. That was one of the wonderful surprises that I found after living for three years is that the Latinx community in Melbourne has grown hip. It was huge. Mm -hmm. When I left, there wasn't many people that spoke Spanish. When I came back, there was hundreds of people that spoke Spanish, and they were not just speaking Spanish, they were a community, and they were organizing stuff. I was able to eat my, my national food in Melbourne. I was like, you know? Wow. I was able to speak Spanish and meet other people from my... And, and they were organizing poetry slams, and they were doing... And I got invited to 3CR on my first week. A couple of wow. my friends were doing a show for the Latinx community, and they were like, oh, you... You're good at this. You're a, you used to be a journal at home. And I was like, yeah, I studied here, but no one gave me a job. They prefer me cooking. They were like, well, you should come and, you should come and do the, the radio show with us. And well, yeah, it's been two and a half years of that. 3CR is a great part of my, my lovely family. You know, it's a fantastic place to work in and volunteer. And I've been cooking and organizing parties when we were not in lockdowns. I play music as well. Sometimes I do gigs. Well, hang on, hang on. You play music. What do you play? I play the guitar and I sing. Right? I like to do... What? I mix covers of, you know, English pop songs with, like, South American hip-hop, and I like to do mashups mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. make people dance. What, where, where, did you, where did you perform when you could perform? Uh, how did I perform? Well, that was something that, that was... <laughs> That was non-compatible. I didn't play for a long time because I was cooking. But, for example, when I was chefing at, uh, at Lentils, that's anything in Thunbury for a little bit, I chef up there. Um, yeah. On the Tuesday nights that there was an open midnight, I used to leave somebody else, somebody else in the kitchen in charge and go down and play a set and then go back to the kitchen. And I used to arrange yeah. it with the dishwasher, actually, put the dishwasher in my position. I'll go and play, and then I'll do the dishes at night so I could play for a little bit. Um, That's what you call multi-skilling, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know how it is, mate. As migrants, we tend to be jacks of all trades, you know? Yeah, we have had to yeah. adapt to many different situations and learn a whole bunch of stuff. And so you music is something that I enjoy. Yeah, have you got any plans for the future? Well, you want to share? Uh, I would like to tell you that I had thousands of plans for the future before this COVID thing happened because most of my... Yeah. My plans for the future were artist-based. I wanted to play more music. I wanted to organize more parties. I was uh, very infatuated with trying to show uh, Australians how a South American asado is, how a South American party is, because we reckon they're really going to like it, you know? And, um, and yeah, COVID kind of, like, make this reality a little bit liquid, and, you know, the arts are struggling, so more likely I'm going to have to go back to cooking when there is more jobs available. I, I had a plan to, you know, make another radio show and stuff, but we're all stuck. Well, it's COVID, man. Like, there were plans. Let's not talk about them. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, look, I think it's important to talk because a lot of people are in our, your position and my position. It's COVID. It's made a huge difference to our lives, and uh, the numbers aren't very good in Melbourne at the minute, and this could go on for a number of months, not just six weeks. So, 
Well, I'm not going to lie to you, Joe. I'm scared, you know. I'm scared of what's mm. going on. I've seen the heat that the arts have taken. And, you know, the arts mm. have been hidden for a long time with cuts in, in, the, in the budget. And yes, the distribution yes. of the money as well, you know. And um, we've seen the arts sector, we don't even have a minister anymore, disappeared. Yes. Completely disappeared under the COVID. Um, we don't see any, any move from the government to try to help. We saw yesterday the measurements that they took are basically give a lot of tax breaks of American companies to come and, and, and shoot films here. But we don't yes. see any plans that they're pointing straight out to uh, to give Australian artists work. They're mm. all in the gig economy. You know, making plans is a bit difficult. My partner is also an artist. She's a visual artist. She does exhibitions yeah. and, you know, does all of that. And basically we're both sitting down here going like, well, when we come back of the lockdown and in this recession, we're pretty sure that the arts are going to be the last bit, you know, the arts are, looked, are seen as the cherry on top of the cake, but they're going to have to bake the cake first and we're going to be at the end. Well, that's why I encourage you to, you know, develop that second 3CR program because I think uh, radio is going to become increasingly important during the next six to 12 months as things get much more and more difficult. And I think 3CR is in a position to... Uh, influence a section of the population at least so uh, i'd work on that that's my advice yes that's it well you know how it is we roll with the punches we're humans yeah. we adapt yeah. and as long as we keep together and keep our community stronger i'm really sure that we're going to be able to come back with solutions it's what we're always done you know well human beings have always come back with solutions the plague was there in Europe for 300 years, so, you know, you should come and go, come and go, and uh, human beings, we, we do come back with solutions, but uh, you're quite right about the arts industry, it's been wiped out, the same as the restaurant industry. Um, I don't think people understand how difficult things may become in the next six to 12 months, especially here in Melbourne, if we don't get this uh, under control soon, and um, hopefully you've got your mask, have you? Well, I, got, I got my mask. I'm trying not to go out. I'm trying to do my best. I think that the ones that we... I'm, be, I'm very grateful, Joe, that I'm in a position that, you know, my house is warm. That, you know, with the money that I have, I'm, I'm able to pay my rent and I'm not struggling in that sense for the moment. Even though I am uncertain about the future, I appreciate that right now we're good because I look at outside of Australia and uh, I don't think Australians have taking a look outside and see the sanitary emergency as well, because we are just looking at the economical parts. That's the way that we're being hit here. Mm. But in other parts of the world, the heat is not just economical. It's also in lives. It's in life. You see, you see those pictures of grave after grave after grave in South America. It's just extraordinary. It's yeah, so sad, Joe. Like at the same time, people not being able to, to say goodbye to their loved ones as well, you know, and... Yeah. Just being Horrific. separated from everyone. I really yeah. hope, I really hope that in Australia we don't get to that point that people are... Well, we have, we have. I was, yeah, I was talking to a friend yesterday and uh, he wasn't able to see his mother die in hospital here in Melbourne. Oh, uh, it yeah, has gone to the now in Melbourne. With uh, restrictions, it's become very, very difficult. Look, that's a, a negative note to end on, but uh, all I can say is I'm pleased you've got your permanent residence and that you're one of us. As far as I was concerned, once you did the big road trip, you did the big road trip in the Ford Falcon. You were one of us. Yeah, thanks, Joe. I appreciate that. Yeah. I think you see more of of Australia than most Australians, and I think people do need to do that road trip and not wait till they're grown. No man. With all of this COVID stuff and, you know, knowing that young people are not... um, are the most affected, you know, by the unemployment, I would like to use it instead of terming, like, turning this into negative, let's turn it into positive. Australia is huge, and there are work, they work in the fields, and they work, it's not, it's hard, it's hard work, but it's a beautiful life too. And I think that this would be a wonderful opportunity for young Australians to explore and to go at the back and see where they're needed, where there are other jobs, you know, if you're young, it's a good way to travel and and help and and build a nation, and, and at the same time, make a little bit of a buck in places that it's a little bit cheaper to live, you know? Mm. Well, hopefully in a few years we'll all be able to go back to that type of uh, lifestyle because it is it is something I think anybody, every, everybody should experience. Look, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Um, as Thank I you. said before, I'm pleased you're at 3CR and I encourage you to do that second program.
because I think we need uh, diversity. Uh, as the sister girls told you, you know, you need diversity. And uh, that's one thing about Melbourne, as you said, you can be as diverse as you like and you're not going to be out of kilter with the majority of the population. So, uh, so thank you for coming to Australia. Thank you for coming on Radical Australia. Look after yourself and all the best to you and your partner and your friends and family for the future. Thanks, Joe. Same for you and your family. Stay safe. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.